Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of History Stories for My Son, the podcast where we remember that history is a story that should be shared with every generation. As always, I'd ask if you like this podcast and would like to see it continue, please take a minute to rate and review and share it with your friends. Also, as I've mentioned the last couple of weeks, I recently published a book, History Stories for Everyone, uh, which if you're a fan of this show, there's a very good chance you're going to like the book, uh, which explores some of the stories that I've talked about here, going into a little bit more depth, a little bit more polish, and in uh, a written format. And uh, beautiful book, you can order it at uh, Amazon under my name, David Faith, and History Stories for Everyone. And there's also a link at my website, History Stories for My Son. Com. So if you wanted a concrete way to support the podcast, uh, that would be the way to do it. This week, we'll tell you the story of Jackie Robinson, the man who shattered baseball's color line. May 13th, 1947, Cincinnati, Ohio, United States of America. The Brooklyn Dodgers are the visiting team against the hometown Cincinnati Reds, set to square off in America's pastime, the game of baseball. The crowd is in a nasty mood. Playing in his first year for the Dodgers is Jackie Robinson, the first and, at the time, only African-American to break baseball's infamous color barrier. As the Dodgers come onto the field, they're met with boos, hisses, and epithets so nasty, I will not repeat them. I think anyone listening can probably fill in the gaps about what was being said. Some fans even threw food and other things onto the field. Robinson, of course, receives the most abuse, but his teammates aren't spared. Pee Wee Reese, captain of the team and a southerner who grew up in nearby Louisville, Kentucky, is called traitor and carpetbagger. Pee Wee, how can you play with that black bastard, someone shouts. Robinson shuts it out. He's used to it. That doesn't mean he's fine with it, but he made a promise to Branch Rickey, general manager and president of the Dodgers, to turn the other cheek. He's a man of his word, so he focuses on playing. Pee-wee can't shut it out. Finally, he decides he's had enough. He walks across the infield to Robinson. They exchange some words, the specifics of which have been lost to time. Then Pee-wee pointedly puts his arm around Jackie's shoulders. The crowd falls silent. Shocked? Or perhaps moved? It's an eerie silence for a Major League Baseball stadium. The embrace lingers long enough for everyone to understand the message being conveyed. This is my teammate, it seems to say. And we accept him. 
Then Pee-wee runs back to his place, and the game continues. Jackie Robinson had won over his teammates, and soon he would win over America. But it was a long road getting there. The man who would become the most influential athlete in American history was born on January 31, 1919, in Cairo, Georgia. The youngest of five children, he was named Jackie Roosevelt Robinson, the middle name given in honor of Theodore Roosevelt, who had died a few months earlier. His father, a sharecropper, meaning a farmer so poor he didn't even own the land he farmed, abandoned the family when Jackie was only one year old. It was not an auspicious beginning to life. Fortunately, his mother was determined that her children would have a good life, and took it upon herself to move the family out west to the promised land of Southern California. The family settled in Pasadena, a prosperous, sun-drenched community north of Los Angeles, known for hosting the annual Rose Bowl game and parade. There, Jackie was a very poor kid in a very rich town, and a minority to boot. His mother worked a variety of odd jobs that paid enough barely to make ends meet. But Jackie was shut out of a lot of the social life of the community. He learned to rely on himself and his Christian faith. His family formed a tight-knit unit with an us-against-the-world determination to make it. Jackie watched with admiration as his older brother Mac became a star athlete, and not just locally. Mac went to the 1936 Berlin Olympics, where he won a silver medal in the men's 200-meter sprint. Despite breaking the previous Olympic record, Mac finished 0.4 seconds behind another groundbreaking African-American athlete, Jesse Owens. One advantage California had over Georgia was that it was not the segregated South. In 1935, Jackie started at John Moore High School, where he quickly won over the majority white student population with his phenomenal talents. He quickly became the outstanding athlete at the school, lettering in baseball, basketball, football, and track. In the 1936 Pomona Annual Baseball Tournament All-Star Team, he played alongside future Hall of Famers Ted Williams and Bob Lemon. So, in case you're counting, that means three future Hall of Famers on that team, including Jackie Robinson himself. Odd to be able to go back and see that. After a stint in junior college, he went to UCLA. Even at the collegiate level, which was, of course, much more competitive, his skills still marked him as extraordinary. He again lettered in four sports, baseball, basketball, football, and track, and was the first UCLA student ever to do so. He was one of just four African-American players on the UCLA Bruins football team, which won him the most notoriety as football was by far the biggest sport on campus. The team went undefeated in 1939, in no small part due to the player dubbed by the student newspapers as Lightning Jackie Robinson. He became particularly known for big, dramatic plays. He led the Bruins in yardage for both pass receptions and rushing, scored the most points, and led the entire country in punt returns. 
He played football semi-professionally after college, but not for long. Soon, world events would profoundly change his life, and the lives of his entire generation. On December 7, 1941, the United States Pacific Fleet was suddenly and devastatingly attacked by the Empire of Japan. Jackie, who had spent a season playing for the Honolulu Bears football team, was not there when the attack happened. He'd moved back to California. But the personal connection, having no doubt seen the ships at anchor in Pearl Harbor, must have made reports of the attack all the more visceral to him. So it was that 1942 found Jackie Robinson at Fort Riley, Kansas, training to be a soldier. There he met and befriended heavyweight boxing champion Joe Lewis, who had successfully used his fame to lobby for qualified black candidates like himself to be admitted to officer candidate school. Robinson himself benefited from this as he was selected to become an officer. And after finishing OCS, Jackie Robinson was commissioned a second lieutenant in January of 1943. He was then transferred to Fort Hood, Texas, where he was assigned to the, quote, Black Panthers of the 761st Tank Battalion. Unfortunately, before he could deploy with his unit, Robinson's military career was cut short by an incident that is going to sound very familiar to students of U.S. history. Even though it happened more than a decade before the far more famous incident involving Rosa Parks. Jackie got on a bus heading back to the base from a medical appointment where he was being treated for an old football injury to his ankle. He recognized the wife of a fellow officer and sat down next to her in the middle of the bus. This was on a non-segregated army bus, so Robinson had every right to sit wherever he wanted. Despite that, the bus driver ordered him to the back of the bus, claiming his presence was making the surrounding white ladies uncomfortable. Robinson refused. The driver called him names, including the N-word, but eventually backed down. However, when the bus got back to base, he, the driver, went to the MPs, the military police, and claimed that Robinson had caused a disturbance on the bus. Robinson, understandably, protested angrily, and was placed in the back of a patrol car by the MPs. A passing private asked about the, quote, inward lieutenant. Of course, he didn't say inward, he said the actual word they had in their car, which prompted Robinson to threaten to break the man in two. Robinson had every right to be angry, and not only because of the vile word. He was an officer, and enlisted soldiers were disregarding his rank because of the color of his skin and treating him with contempt. This is a big deal in the army. Disrespecting a superior commissioned officer is actually a crime, and if the law had been applied fairly, the man who'd called him that epithet would have faced a court-martial. But this was 1944, and so Robinson was hauled in front of an unsympathetic MP captain who proceeded to interview several white witnesses, including the private who disrespected Robinson. When Lieutenant Robinson tried to tell his side of the story, he was told to sit down, shut up, and wait in another room. When he persisted, he was the one hauled up on charges, court-martialed for supposedly disrespecting the MP captain and disobeying his orders. 
Fortunately, not everyone in the army was that bad. Robinson's military defense attorney represented him vigorously at court-martial, successfully impeaching the MP captain for his unequal treatment of Robinson. He also called the private the one who called Robinson the N-word. Um, and he caught him out in a lie. Uh, after getting the man to swear under oath that he'd never said the word, the attorney then called the MP corporal who was on the scene and asked him what the private had said. Uh, the corporal, uh, was a white soldier and had no motive to lie about it, agreed that the private had said the word. This, of course, completely discredited the private in front of the panel. And indeed, the nine-member panel voted to acquit Robinson on all charges. So he was completely cleared of any military misconduct. However, unfortunately, between the medical issue Robinson had been going to the doctor about in the first place, the floating bone chip in his ankle, and the court-martial uh, itself, Robinson had been delayed so much that he'd lost his opportunity to deploy with his units, and he was honorably discharged from the army in November of 1944. He spent a year playing, uh, quote, Negro League baseball before being asked on August 28, 1945, to meet with Brooklyn Dodgers president and general manager Branch Rickey. The Dodgers' GM had been wanting to integrate baseball for years. In addition to believing segregation was wrong, he also saw black players as a huge untapped pool of talent. But he needed more than talent. He needed the first groundbreaking player to have the mental strength and conviction to put up with the inevitable hate storm coming his way. For that reason, he passed over several Negro League players who, in terms of raw baseball talent, were better than Robinson. Ricky was blunt. He needed Robinson, at least at first, while the experiment was fragile, to turn the other cheek. He couldn't react angrily and fight fire with fire, because that would give the enemies of integration ammunition to claim that black players were too volatile for the sport of baseball. Now, Robinson, as you might imagine, at first was appalled. Are you looking for a Negro who's afraid to fight back? He asked. Ricky replied, no. He was looking for a Negro player, quote, with guts enough not to fight back. Robinson agreed, as a condition of being hired, to turn the other cheek for a period of three years. After that, if the experiment worked, he'd be free to speak his mind. Like almost all newly hired players, Robinson would have to prove himself in the minors before he'd be allowed to play in the big leagues. In 1946, he was assigned to the Dodgers affiliate Montreal Royals. He was not exactly welcomed with open arms. The team's manager begged Ricky to assign Robinson to any other Dodgers affiliate. Ricky flatly refused. Spring training in Florida was complicated by racist shenanigans, including at one point the local Parks and Recs board literally chaining shut a baseball stadium to prevent Robinson from playing in it. Nevertheless, Robinson persisted. He received a warmer reception in Montreal, where the fan base quickly embraced him. As well they might, he was the league's most valuable player in his first and only season for the Royals. Interest in him also drove record ticket sales, with an unheard of for the minor league's million fans paying to watch him in action. 
Then in 1947, it finally happened. Robinson was called up to play for the Dodgers in the major leagues. He would be the first black player to play for any major league team since the color line went into effect in the 1880s. Some Dodgers players were unhappy about this, going so far as to circulate a petition threatening to sit out if Robinson were allowed to play. Dodgers manager Leo DeRocher was having none of it. He said, I don't care if the guy is yellow or black or if he has stripes like a zebra. I'm the manager of this team and I say he plays. What's more, I say he can make us all rich. And if any of you cannot use the money, I'll see that you are all traded. He was right about the money. Robinson was a huge draw. Everywhere he went, huge crowds came out to see him, including large numbers of African-American spectators who previously had little interest in the segregated majors, uh, having attended the Negro League games previously. Civil rights leaders viewed it as important that they turn out large numbers to support Robinson. Black preachers would encourage their congregations to attend the game and act in an exemplary, respectful fashion whenever Robinson was in town, and they did it in huge numbers. And it must be said, Robinson was not without support, including from no less powerful a figure than National League President Ford Frick, who in response to threats by some players to go on strike rather than play against Robinson, let it be known that any striking player would be suspended. He said, this is the United States of America, and one citizen has as much right to play as another. Robinson's own teammates eventually rallied around him, united ironically by the racist hostility he'd faced after a particularly vile string of abuse from a Phillies manager in which Robinson was called the N-word and advised to, quote, go back to the cotton fields, Lance Rickey observed that this did more than anything to unite the Dodgers, rallying around their teammate. Jewish baseball star Hank Greenberg, who'd faced his own set of ethnic epithets, gave Robinson the best advice. He said the best way to respond to his critics was to win baseball games. And Robinson took that advice to heart. Boy, did he take that advice to heart. He played well enough to win the league's Rookie of the Year award in 1947, his first year playing. And I think in the end, it's that, the fact that he indisputably could play with the best of the best, that gradually shut up the people who thought he didn't belong. Teammates noted that as the season went on, the level of vitriol tapered off as the racists realized they were in the minority, and most fans just wanted to watch Robinson play. Despite starting his major league career at the relatively geriatric age of 28, Robinson went on to play for a decade, 10 seasons. He earned the National League Most Valuable Player Award in 1949, and was elected to the All-Star team for six consecutive years, from 1949 to 1954. The Dodgers won six pennants in Robinson's ten seasons. In 1955, Jackie Robinson helped the Brooklyn Dodgers to their first-ever World Series victory against the hated New York Yankees, who'd won five previous World Series matchups going back to 1941. Millions of Americans watched the game, the first World Series televised in color, 
to see the first man of color finally earn his championship ring. By then, Robinson was no longer unique. Black players became a common sight in ballparks across America after Jackie Robinson proved that baseball fans would watch, even embrace, colored players. In what must have been a dizzying whiplash, Robinson went from the early days of being greeted with hatred and epithets to becoming a national celebrity who was so popular he was cast to play himself in his own autobiographical movie in 1950. And despite a franchise-leading salary at the time, he actually earned more off the field than on it. There were Jackie Robinson comics, Jackie Robinson songs, you name it, someone was trying to make a buck off his famous name and image, and he made quite a few bucks off of them. After honoring his initial promise to Branch Rickey to turn the other cheek, Robinson became outspoken later in his career, using his fame uh, to denounce discrimination and call for equality. Robinson, like so many he represented, just wanted a chance to be judged by who he was and what he could do and not by the color of his skin. He said, I'm not concerned with your liking or disliking me. All I ask is that you respect me as a human being. After leaving baseball in 1957, he became even more active in the civil rights movement. In 1959, he walked into a whites-only waiting room at the Greenville, South Carolina airport, refusing to leave even when the police were called. This inspired a march on the airport by peaceful protesters, leading the airport management to eventually concede and end their practice of segregating people by race. Robinson spoke out in talks around the nation and inspired future civil rights leaders, including Martin Luther King Jr. As if that wasn't enough, he also led the way towards desegregation of corporate America, becoming the first American to serve as the vice president of a major corporation, the chock-full-of-nuts coffee and restaurant chain. A political independent, Robinson supported political candidates of both parties. He maintained an improbable, warm friendship with Richard Nixon, supporting him in the 1960 presidential election. However, in 1968, he supported Nixon's opponent, Hubert Humphrey, feeling that Nixon should have spoken out in support of Martin Luther King Jr. rather than remaining cautiously silent. Robinson urged African Americans to avoid blind partisanship, arguing that if either party began to feel they could take black voters for granted, it would reduce their influence. His focus was on equality, and he didn't want that focus to be hijacked by unrelated issues. Robinson died young, in 1972, from complications of adult-onset diabetes, which had plagued him ever since his last couple seasons in the major leagues. In fact, that's probably what caused him to leave the major leagues. At the time of his death, he was only 53 years old. Almost 50 years later, Robinson remains a household name. In 1997, Major League Baseball took the unprecedented step of retiring Jackie Robinson's number across the entire sport, not just for a single team. No Major League Baseball player on any team will ever wear the number 42. In 2013, 
Robinson was portrayed by Chadwick Boseman, who later went on to depict Marvel's Black Panther in the movie 42, named after his famous number. It's probably fair to say that in American civil rights history, Robinson stands second only to the man he inspired, Martin Luther King Jr., who said of him, Jackie Robinson made my success possible. Without him, I would never have been able to do what I did. Is this overstating things? Baseball is just a game, right? It is, but it also occupies a unique position in the American psyche. It's America's pastime and was even more so in Jackie Robinson's time. If millions of Americans were excluded from America's pastime because of the color of their skin, then what did that say about America? It called into question what was meant by the term American. Thus, by breaking that color line, Jackie didn't just open up a game to black Americans. He opened up America. By demanding inclusion in America's pastime, he demanded inclusion in America itself. And by proving that he deserved to play at the highest level, he proved that black Americans could and should participate in all walks of national life. No fair-minded person could look at his career, the hostility he overcame, the success he achieved, and doubt that he deserved to play. And if he deserved to play, then that proves that everyone does, limited only by talent and hard work and not by skin color. Jackie Robinson was not just a baseball player. He did not merely shatter baseball's color line. In a real sense, he helped shatter America's color line. And we are all better off for it.